This is Old Movies for Young Stoners, the podcast that pairs weed with cult and classic films to enhance your trip through cinema history. We've got San Francisco entertainment critic Pam Grady joining us today, and she has finally brought westerns into Old Movies for Young Stoners. First, we've got Zachariah, a psychedelic and homoerotic gunfighter epic from 1971 that celebrates the love that John Rubenstein has for Don Johnson and features performances by Country Joe and the Fish and the James Gang, who still have their Gibson SGs and Fender stacks, even though the movie takes place in the Wild West. And then Hollywood's ultimate pothead, Robert Mitchum, makes his first appearance on the show in Pursued, a psychological western from tough guy director Raoul Walsh in 1947. So go west, young stoner, because we've got the best weed out here, and you'll find out more about that on Old Movies for Young Stoners. on Old Movies for Young Stoners, the podcast that tells you what to score at the dispensary before you be and doobie. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew that would get you. Before we introduce our guests, let me introduce my co-hosts. We've got Greg Franklin from Six Point Harness Studios. Hey, everybody. And he is a resident bud tender and your guide on the Hollywood Punk Rock Graveyard Tour. Look it up on Instagram, Corey Sklar. Howdy, partner. And I'm Bob Calhoun, author of The Murders That Made Us, a true crime history of San Francisco. Felina Franklin is on strike, and our guest today, she is a Bay Area movie and entertainment critic, and her work has been featured in the San Francisco Chronicle, SF Gate, SF Weekly, 48 Hills, and she was the program guide copy editor for SF Film, the presenter of the San Francisco International Film Festival. Let's hear it for Pam Grady. Hey, Pam, I've talked about how San Francisco is back on the show previously, that, you know, there's the doom cycle. Everybody's talking about how San Francisco is over. But I say San Francisco is back because you could buy mushrooms from a guy with a table right in front of Taqueria Pancho Villa. So I'm just thinking that it's back. What do you think? I don't think it ever left. And I'm personally fond of a doom loop because it keeps the riffraff away. (laughs) There was a point where I was. I was kind of bummed that people in Palo Alto weren't afraid of the city anymore. But now now they're terrified. I have neighbors that, you know, moved here when we were gentrifying and they're now terrified. <laughs> yeah. That's, yes, great. that's good news. Um, yeah. The people that are there want to be there and it's the right people that are there still. So that's good. Pam, it's so good to have you on the show, um, you know, in this world of movie fandom where you're dealing with so many critics and programmers and, and just fans and, and people that work in the movie industry, it's, it's hard to get a good one. And you're one of the good ones out there. So I've, I've wanted you on the show for a while. Tell me, what's going on with the with the rep, uh, repertory theater scene in San Francisco right now? I don't know since I've been in L.A. You know, as you know, we have lost Castro. Um, which, Is it gone? No more, no more, no more movies. There? Well, there are movies, but eventually they plan to rip out the seats and... Uh. And there's not regular programming and doesn't appear there will be regular programming again, and which is a shame. 
That's so sad. One of my favorite things in the world to do was to just go to the Castro and just trust their programming and and see what they were doing and get a sandwich at Rossi's Deli and and you know that was like genuinely the best thing in the world to discover new new film mm -hmm. I haven't seen before at the beautiful movie house like that. It's a really magical place. But you know we still have the Roxy. We have the Vogue, we have the Balboa, the four stars back. I'm actually oh, nice. introducing a film. They're doing a Scorsese retrospective in September, and I'm introducing the last Dylan doc that he did at the end of the month. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, man, I wish I could go. Oh, I'm going to be in town next, at the end of the month. I'm going to try to go to that. Awesome. I did not watch that on Netflix ever, and so I will keep that up and hopefully make it to the four star. I mean, where's the four star at? It's on Clement. It's, oh, yeah, I like yeah, that area. Yeah, <laughs> I know that theater. Yeah. Get some good Chinese food, some good dumplings, just like at the Balboa. You know, uh, I just saw Godzilla Fest at the Balboa, which was great. Ooh. And uh, Creepy Coffee is doing an event there in October where they're showing Messiah of Evil. And uh, uh, but the mm -hmm. Castro was the flagship of the fleet. I mean, in the whole Bay Area, and losing it, it's there are these other smaller theaters, these great theaters. I love what the Roxy's doing in Balboa. That theater group that. Balboa four star and the Vogue, but yeah, losing the Castro and, and when they do film events, some of them, you do have to buy tickets through Ticketmaster, yeah. which is just like so many stages of wrong. And Fuck they're that. really expensive. I mean, yeah. Really yeah. Expensive. I mean, if, if Goblin or, or the one guy in Goblin and the other guys he brings with him are playing through a Dario Argento movie, it, it, it's worth it. But for other film events, not so much. And Ticketmaster is causing problems on the film festival circuit nationwide because yeah. like tell you right, I think don't quote me on that, but some of these film festivals or the independent film festival are going through Ticketmaster, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, this hot director is showing up for this one screening or might show up. And then like StubHub scalping is going on the legalized scalping we have. And so all of a sudden these tickets are like 400 bucks, 500 bucks for certain screenings at film festivals. So which is just all kinds of wrong criminal um on the scorsese tip i went to uh the arrow theater here in santa monica which is such a schlep to get out to santa monica let me tell you last week and i saw the king of comedy on 35 introduced by joe dante now here's oh, what i want to say wow. joe, joe dante, dante <laughs> he's so charming yeah and funny and he's like how many people in this theater haven't seen the king of comedy before and it was a young crowd and more than half of the people raised their hand. Awesome. Pretty yeah, right? And he said, I don't, I want you guys to know, even though Jerry Lewis is in this movie, it's not a comedy, okay? Everyone's like, okay. And the lights went down and uh, the movie went on and hysterical laughter the whole movie. Now, there's this thing that older, <laughs> older movie uh, fans, even myself, are like, younger fans are so annoying because they laugh at stuff that's not funny, right? Like if someone's using a, a rotary phone, for instance, they're gonna younger people will laugh at that, like, ah, oh, what's that when it's not funny? And this is an instance where I've watched King of Comedy a hundred times and I've been like, oh my God, this movie's so dark and it's so, but it's actually really funny. And I never noticed how funny it was until I watched it in a theater full of young people that have never seen it before who were laughing at everything. Like the Sandra Bernhardt scene where she's seducing Jerry. People were cracking up at that before. I was like, this is a very twisted, dark scene, but it's actually, she plays it very funny. The Scorsese, yeah. the Scorsese cameo, hilarious. It's actually a really <laughs> funny, 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 dark movie. And I think maybe we were wrong in it when we were 
when we thought it was so serious. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Well, Goodfellas, I mean, as somebody, one of these twisted people, I was 21 at the time. We saw Goodfellas in theaters like 12 times because it ran for, it ran somewhere for like almost a year, especially when the Oscar hype started on it. Goodfellas is one of, is when you see it in a theater, I mean, there's the, the really dark stuff and that's not funny, but I mean, a lot of the Joe Pesci stuff and the, the kind of almost bungled, but not bungled robberies and, you know, just all of that. It's a very funny movie for maybe the first half of the movie. Totally. Mm -hmm. Scorsese is very funny. Goodfellas is funny. Casino is funny. King Comedy is mm -hmm. funny. Last Temptation of Christ, not so funny. <laughs> After Hours. After Hours. After Hours. Oh, <laughs> yeah, super fun. Yeah, I don't think he gets enough credit for his comic timing, maybe, and maybe should be reevaluated as such. So I went to see The King of Comedy in the theaters. Has anyone gone and seen anything in an actual theater lately? God, I don't think I've seen anything in theater since the Barbie Oppenheimer double bill. Well, well, that's 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 double very double overwhelming. Bill, so it's okay. You need a couple months off after that one two <laughs> yeah. punch. Actually, I did see something at the Roxy, and now I cannot remember what the hell it was. So clearly, didn't make an impression. Bob, you see everything. Have you seen anything? Two weeks ago, I went to Godzilla Fest at the Balboa. I only went to one day. I, I'm, you know, after getting COVID a couple of months ago, I'm kind of like, I can't just be at Godzilla Fest for two days. What was the crowd like? What was the crowd like? Was it older people? Yeah, it was older, but see, um, it's Godzilla. So those older people bring their kids. So those six-year-old kids are seeing the wonder of men in rubber suits, whether it's the 2000s kaiju movies or the Showa era original Godzilla. I went on my nostalgia trip because they were showing Godzilla versus Megalon, which Ooh. my dad took me to see when I was six years old, when it was first run at, and I had to figure it out. I had to look it up through newspaper archives, through newspapers.com. And I couldn't remember what theater it was. And it was at the Carlos, which was in San Carlos. It was one of two theaters there. The Laurel was the other one. And it was torn down shortly after I saw Godzilla versus Megalon there. In 1976, this I'm a geezer, so they were still doing double features. They were still doing like an A feature, and then a B feature was kind of a second run thing. So Godzilla vs. Megalon, in a lot of theaters, played with the giant spider invasion. They came from another world to destroy the Earth. It was the giant spider invasion. It's got the skipper from Gilligan's Island. It's got a VW bug with a bunch of bearskin rugs thrown over it and unconvincing <laughs> spider legs. But... At six years old, I, I thought both those movies were great. My poor dad had to suffer through both of them. But what I didn't realize till I saw the giant spider invasion until years later is it's got nudity in it. It's got it's got tits in it. And somehow at six years old, I was more concerned about the giant spiders, the fake spiders than I was about that. So I had no memory that my dad was taking me to this R-rated giant spider movie with this woman walking around naked for, like, she's walking around the kitchen naked for a good amount of time. So I don't remember that. I remember Godzilla doing a kind of drop kick into Gigan. That's what I remember. That was, <laughs> so people that are kind of overly worried about children and nudity, like, there's a point, it's either hilarious or you just don't really notice it because you're more concerned with the giant spiders. So, yeah. My, my wonderful dad taking me to, that's why I went is because, oh, my dad took me to see this in a theater that was kind of like the Balboa and it's playing there. So I was trying to go back in time as much as I could. And Godzilla Fest allowed me to do that. Giant against giant in a duel to the death. I love the Balboa theater so much. This is what I would do if I was at Godzilla Fest. I'd go see Godzilla versus Megalodon. Is that what you saw? Um, Megalon. Yeah. Megalon. Sorry. Are we dead naming Megalon? 
<laughs> you go across the street to the Hockey Haven. The Hockey Haven's a little bar there. You order yourself a double Midori Sour, and you, you, you just drink a big old green drink in honor of Godzilla. That's what's great about the Balboa Theater. Anyone visiting San Francisco, listeners out there, movie fans, when you're in San Francisco, visit the Balboa Theater and go to the Hockey Haven across the street. That's my advice to you. Oh, I we went to the Hockey Haven, and they ah. still... The, speaking of the San Francisco Doom Loop, they still had Anchor Steam and they had the Anchor Steam American Lager, which was kind of my favorite Anchor Steam near the end. So wow. it was, and they had the old taps on. So with the original logos of Anchor Steam, not the new logo that failed to to turn their fortunes around. So that was great. I mean, you know, going there and having the last the last kegs of Anchor and seeing Godzilla. And also I saw Godzilla versus Mothra. I stayed in they had two rooms. They had one with newer Godzilla movies, which are great. And they had another room with the old stuff. And I was in the mood for the old stuff. I'd be in the old, I'd be in the old stuff room. I'd be in the old stuff room. But the new ones, I mean, Godzilla versus Space Godzilla and Final Wars, they, they really, they do everything a Godzilla movie needs to do. I love Shin Godzilla so much that I didn't realize there was a Shin universe. So there's also Shin Ultraman and Shin Kamen Rider, which I watched this week. And they're both very, they're all very good. This Shin, this new reboot of the classic big, uh, you know, tentpole Japanese um, kaiju guys are, are very cool. Cayman Rider is something that I never knew about. So uh, that wasn't really in, on LA TV. But we did have Ultraman on Channel 9 on Sunday. So, yeah. We haven't really talked about Barbie, so we have. Uh, we, we haven't. Have we, we, we we did a Barbie episode, but it's the lost Barbie episode. It's shelved until the SAG WGA strike ends. So what's to there. say about Barbie? What is to say? We've everything's been said. Pam, I read your review of Barbie. Yet. You were very positive about Barbie. Do you still feel the same way now that you've gotten some distance from it? I was a Barbie girl growing up until probably world? grade when I started destroying them because that's what little girls do they reach adolescence and they destroy what they used to love so that they may you know leave the chrysalis and become butterflies i kind of knew what to expect going in i think a lot of people didn't they were like oh this is going to be a kids movie and i'm like no this is greta gerwig and it's co-written by noah Baumbach. there's no way in hell this is a kids movie and it did not disappoint from that angle it's got the best final line of any film this year that's not going to be topped and ryan gosling is just like i mean he is ken enough i loved it too i didn't think i was going to love it because i don't love anything i yeah it knocked me <laughs> out i didn't love oppenheimer uh, surprisingly but um i love barbie barbie's more my speed yeah well oppenheimer i just thought when when it was over i turned to my friend and i just said well that was very prestigious <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably shooting myself in the foot with our audience here, but I'm just not a Chris Nolan fan. And I can't, I keep thinking I need to see this and it becomes this chore. Even with the, I want to see the nudity that's upsetting Christians on TikTok. I hear. So there's that. <laughs> as far as yeah. Barbie not being a kid's movie, I, I think it really operates on two different levels. Maybe it's a little long for kids, but every movie is a little long for kids because I saw the the most recent Spider-Verse movie and that thing's pushing three hours and kids like 90 minutes is the most you could hold young kids no matter what the movie is. But I think going back to the giant spider invasion and the the nudity and adult stuff that I just didn't even see at six years old, I think a lot of kids, a lot of a lot of young girls or young anybody. 
are just seeing a different movie than we're seeing. They're still seeing Barbie. They're still seeing the 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 pink, the hot pink world of Barbie. Uh, it's maybe implanting some ideas in their heads, which those Christians that are upset at Oppenheimer are probably also upset about. But I think that uh, kids are gonna be satisfied by it, and that we we worry too much about that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's entirely possible. Uh, you just brought up something, Bob. That I before we move on to the the movies, I want to ask you guys really quick. So there's been a lot of discourse lately in the film Twitter world or the film X world, sorry, about um, <laughs> sex scenes because, you know, young people are very puritanical. They think sex scenes are gratuitous. There's never need for them in a, in a narrative film. And you didn't even as a kid, you didn't even notice those rude titties in the, the, the giant spider movie. <laughs> now, so this is bringing up a whole bunch of memories of people having to sit through awkward sex scenes with their parents you know, in the 70s and 80s while in the movie theater. I know I had a couple of those. I went to see Basic Instinct with my dad. He was fine with it. But Greg, you watch a lot of movies with Felina. I'm sure you, got, oh, you, yeah. guys are, you guys are fine with awkward sex scenes, right? Maybe laugh at them. Well, by now. By now, <laughs> by now but yeah. yeah. There's, defi- there's definitely... She's an know, adult uh, human, so yeah, it's different. Yeah, she's an adult. But, you know, there was a time where I had to really you know uh curate you know the playlist and really think hard and there were a few see there were you know some movies where i know that i saw them when i was a kid we had a lot of problems with the movie airplane you know which i showed her when she was like nine or ten you know something like that and the thing that i forgot about airplane is what makes it funny to us is that how serious everybody is but she's watching it and there's this scene where they're taking the egg, the doing this magic trick with the egg coming out of the woman's mouth. And she was terrified and completely <laughs> traumatized by the scene because they're treating it like it's the most serious thing ever, which is what is so hilarious about it. So, you know, you never know what's going to mess up a kid. You know, could could be anything. I have a childhood memory. Um, our local theater just showed old movies in random double bills. And I don't remember the movies we saw. I was with my mom. It was the year after my dad died. So I'm in seventh grade. My sister's in fourth. Mom takes us to the movies and there was the mainstream movie. And then the second one was basically softcore porn. Mm. It was just people fucking for 90 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) My mother's already embarrassed. And then oh, we're walking man. out of the theater and, and we're Catholic school girls. Who do you run into? A couple of nuns. Oh. <laughs> and my mother is just like dying. And I look at her like, mom, they were here too. <laughs> <laughs> Scandalous. Oh, man. Zachariah, the first electric Western. Far out. Run, sit high, up in a saddle. 
Doug Kershaw. The New York Rock Ensemble. Pat Quinn. Billy the Kid, Wild Bill Hickok, Matt Dillon, Marshall McLuhan, I've had them all. Don Johnson. Weird eyes. And John Rubenstein as... Zachariah. Long before Miami Vice made Don Johnson an icon of the pastel and neon 1980s, he was just the grandson of a holy roller preacher from Flat Creek, Missouri, who went to Hollywood to make it as an actor. In 1969, he starred in Fortune in Men's Eyes, a stage play where he is stripped naked and raped in a prison shower by Sal Mineo an out bisexual actor best known for playing the young teen who pines for James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause. Reviewing the opening of Fortune in Men's Eyes for the LA Times, Frederick L. Milstein wrote that the play shocks vividly, brutally, often disgustingly, but praised its few touches of meaningful social commentary. Johnson's performance was convincing enough to land him a contract with MGM and the lead in The Magic of Stanley Sweetheart, a painfully 1970 group sex drama that flopped so hard that MGM dropped Johnson almost as soon as they picked him up. But Johnson was now a Tinseltown hustler who is willing to play queer, which led him to our first film a psychedelic western that celebrates the same-sex love of wannabe gunfighters played by Johnson and John Rubenstein, also featuring totally anachronistic performances by Country Joe and the Fish, the James Gang, and the New York Rock and Roll Ensemble, plus a standout performance by John Coltrane's drummer, Elvin Jones, as the top gun that Johnson and Rubenstein are gunning for. From 1971, this is Zachariah. Uh, Pam, this movie is your pick. So uh, why, why, why Zachariah for this show? This is a movie that for years was just a title for me. It, you know, I grew up in the era where there were still rep houses and the UC Berkeley had its calendar and I always had the calendar. And it always seemed to be on it, usually probably with Greaser's Palace where Alan Arbus plays a Christ figure or A Boy and His Dog with Johnson again, traversing a desert, but in a sci-fi uh, apocalyptic scenario. Um, and then in the DVD era, I was asked to review Zachariah, and that's when I saw it for the first time. And I was presented by this movie with these two impossibly beautiful men. I mean, Don Johnson at that age was, he's ethereal. He's just amazing. And John Rubenstein's that smile of his is he can blind you with it um and they are adorable and it's you know I went to film school I studied a lot of westerns and this one is not like any others and not just because there are rock bands that show up every so often if you read the LA or, or the New York Times review of Zachariah the guy compares it to Lonesome Cowboys Andy Warhol's film. But in Andy Warhol's film, they're modern guys who just go west and screw around a lot. This is different because they are ostensibly straight, ostensibly macho, and yet all of their exchanges are just fraught with this erotic desire that they apparently have for one another. 
we, we paired this movie with Pursued, which was a movie I'd wanted to see and hadn't seen. So this is a rare episode where I hadn't really seen both movies until we programmed them. But I'm now regretting not pairing it with The Outlaw, the Howard Hughes, oh. Howard half Howard Hawks Western, because I think that movie might even be more out homoerotic than this one as far as Westerns go, because I was thinking like the Zachariah, what it's what it's trying to do or what it is doing is going that extra step that Westerns like they're like Red River. There's implied homoeroticism. So many Westerns. It's, it's taking it's outing the implied homoeroticism of so many Westerns. But I'm like, you know, I think the outlaw like they've got Jane Russell's boobs there and they're just ignoring them. And like Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid are way more into each other and they're tying each other up and doing all this kind of kind of bondage <laughs> stuff and just ignoring like the greatest pair of breasts of Hollywood history. It's it's their front and center. Uh, that's definitely what Howard Hughes is concerned with. But the movie is not so concerned with them. They're just ornamental while these and also Doc Holliday is part of this threesome of these three men in that movie. Zachariah is is bringing that back from from Hollywood's past and. That's it's it's a it comes from a weird time where gay played in Hollywood at that brief moment, like maybe a couple of years because you've got Midnight Cowboy, you've got this movie and then Cabaret. You know, there's there's a lot of out gay themed stuff coming out. Some of it's like gays are doomed kind of stuff. But this movie doesn't go there. So, uh, Corey, your thoughts about Zachariah? Much like Pam, this was just a title for me that I passed over because why would I see a movie just called Zachariah? I had no idea what this movie was when I put it on. And the opening scene, and I fucking love the James Gang and Joe Walsh. I think Joe Walsh is the shit. That opening scene with the James Gang playing out there in the desert was so rad. And it's such a heavy riff and it's a heavy, heavy song. reminded me of like uh pink floyd at live at pompeii or something it was so rad <clears throat> so i was in right away once the story started i'm like hey these guys seem kind of gay and <laughs> boy did i i didn't know it was i was like oh this is like going to be some like subtle homoeroticism no man this is a gay ass cowboy rock and roll movie that blew my mind made for stoners this is a stoner movie made for people who are smoking weed doing acid going to the movies so that's what right what i want to put out there also with this with this movie the writer joe massa one of his well it's partially an adaptation unofficial of siddhartha which was the big hippie novel of the time but also he'd been he'd been to india where he visited the maharishi Right after Paul and Ringo had left, but George and John were still there, and he said, "Oh, that's the guy that was there with them." At yeah, the, he said. Oh, he said he wrote part, this. He said part of his inspiration for this was that by the time he got there, George and John were kind of in this competition, see who could who can meditate. The deepest. I've read that before. They were trying to out meditate each other. Before. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my God, that's so interesting. Okay, so that guy wrote this movie. I was gonna yeah. ask, like, who who made this movie? I have no idea. It's amazing. Well, well, Pam, I want to ask you too. You know, I noticed in the credits, uh, it's also the screenplay is also credited to uh, a comedy group from the '60s called the Firesign Theater. Yeah, yeah, and you can and see their humor there. Yeah, they've come up on the podcast before, um, just kind of randomly, but uh, but yeah, like. Did they did they take his script and punch it up or or do you have any insight not, as to what happened their involvement? I'm not sure but I would guess that they punched it up 
that the yeah. funny bits are theirs because the, especially the more absurd stuff, because that's so, so them. Yeah. Totally. It, I, wow. I didn't notice that they, they were, they were involved. Okay. So who directed this movie? Was it a guy of, named George England? Who, did he do anything else? Yeah. Well, he was kind of a journeyman director, but he ended his career as a post-production executive on Golden Girls and Blossom. Oh, Ooh. nice. Yeah. I wonder yeah. if he worked with my homie Zane Busby on the Golden Girls. Um, he okay. edited, he edited the episodes. That was, I was looking at his credits. I, I didn't really find mm. a lot about him. But and then I went down the Don Johnson rabbit hole because I was like reading about Zachariah and then kind of doing the Wikipedia kind of preliminary research. And it's like, oh, he was in that play with Salminio. And then I remembered seeing a true Hollywood story, of course, probably very homophobic if we watched it now, um, of Salminio because Salminio was murdered behind his apartment in 1976. And he's this out gay or out bisexual actor, out gay. And he did that prison play. And I just remember this still from that play of naked Sal Minio behind naked Don Johnson with Don Johnson looking like he's in pain and Sal Minio, you know, looking like he's in a porn film. And it, it was like it stuck with me. So I I went down the Don early Don Johnson career. And, um, you know, and then later on, there were like tell all books in the 80s or, you know, unauthorized biographies of Johnson from ex inquirer reporters saying that him and Salminio had an affair. So, well, can you blame Salminio? Like Pam said, I I have never seen a site that is young Don Johnson in this movie ever in a movie. Like in a, in a, he is he's a snack in this movie. He is so he's I, I, he is eye candy like. Like I've never seen before. He they they dress him up in little cute cowboy outfits. Like Don Johnson, not only not, not only does he look incredible in this movie, he I think he delivers quite an impressive performance too. Second to only, who would have guessed? Fucking Elvin Jones as a uh, as 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 the baddie in this movie, who was exceptionally amazing. Also the best drummer of all time, by yeah. the way. Yeah, uh, and he gets a drum solo. <laughs> his drum solos are incredible. I. I, I mean, I'm truly blown away by this movie. I, I, I can't say uh, enough good things about it. That being said, it wasn't an, an enjoyable watch all the way. Maybe if I was on LSD or something like that. Uh, for my money, if I'm going to watch a, uh, a, a psychedelic cowboy movie about a spiritual awakening, I like El Topo a little more. It has more rewatchability. Wow. But this one is so significant and so important and so likable and that the performances are amazing and the cast is out of control and the music is fucking heavy and cool and psychedelic and it does mix it plays with time a little bit by yeah it takes place in the old west but people have electric guitars and and are and, and are heavy chugging on their fender stacks i don't know it's a pretty wicked ass movie one of the stoniest things we've definitely had on this on this podcast i don't think i enjoyed it quite as much as everybody else did i i'm like I'm just not that into Zachariah and they say his name so many times that they think <laughs> you have as big a crush on him as Don Johnson. It's almost like a young, a 12 year old girl writing his name over and over again. You know, that when that guy with the violin, who is that? The fiddle. Zachariah, Zachariah, you don't need a gun to die. Zachariah, Zachariah. It's like, I'm just not into that into Zachariah, Don Johnson. Elvin but don't Jones. you think? But, but Bob, don't you think they swing for the fences at least? At least they're oh, yeah, trying yeah. I, something. I, 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 you know, no, no. I mean, it has its moments. But I'm like more into Elvin Jones. I love. I mean, he gets the benefit of his his saloon having the James Gang playing in it. 
But I love the part where he kills a guy. He kills a guy in a gunfight in his bar. And then he just pushes the James Gang's drummer off the kit. Get get off this damn kit. I was the drummer for John Coltrane. He kills a guy and does a drum solo. (laughs) Yeah, Elvin Elvin Jones is so exceptional in this movie that I think it's a shame we didn't see more of him in like maybe some more 70s crime films or something like a black exploitation thing. Um, Do you think this movie is a to me, it felt very Ken Russell-y. Do you think it it has any kind of Ken Russell uh, influence? I can see that. I can I can see that it felt it, it has that kind of like over the top with music that especially would, the, the, the 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 female prostitute Bell I forget her name is but like all those scenes Bell with those, Star the, Bell Star with yeah the those big are very Ken Russell that's when the movie pieces. goes straight because Ken right, Russell Ken Russell is one of the few people who does straight camp which sometimes devolves into Benny Hill type stuff there's you know uh, Zachariah is queer camp but it becomes straight camp for a little while. Because both well, those yes. guys tried to go straight for a little bit there. Yeah, it, it's straight, but it also has the most male frontal nudity in that scene where the New York uh, rock ensemble gets completely naked surrounding the bed. So there's more dong in the straightest you know, part of the movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love the part where the bassist is kind of like he's leering through like a picture frame or something as they're as they're doing it. Like the yeah, naked yeah. bassist <laughs> yeah. is all kind of just holding it down and looking like, oh, look at them. They're doing it. I've never heard of that band before. Is that a known band? Have you guys ever heard of that band? The New York I Rock actually, Ensemble? I have one of their records. It's <laughs> a later record. I do. It, it well, I just got it because of the cover. It's, it's this crazy demon on the front of it. It's 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 okay. I, th- I think I like this performance better for obvious reasons. Uh, you know, it's a better showcase of their of their talents. <laughs> and their and their penises. Yeah, I I mean the James Gang stands out. I do give Country Joe and oh the Fish God. and Barry the Fish Melton some credit because they're they are tasked with writing songs or playing the songs that are like a musical where they're songs about the movie and they're forwarding yes. the narrative. We're the Crackers, so they have to do those songs where the James Gang just comes on and plays some of their ballsiest songs from that time. So, well, not only that, but the James the 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 Country Joe and the Fish ride horses like fucking rodeo stars in this movie. Like and it's all the entire band. Like they're kicking ass on these horses. Like that is really impressive considering that they're all like stoned out of their gourds and yeah, they aren't no burrito brothers fake ass cowboys you know no. they're, they're real ass cowboys <laughs> they are, no they're fucking amazing they are berkeley cowboys <laughs> <laughs> greg what do you think of zachariah you know to echo you know what you were saying i think that don johnson is the most beautiful woman in the world i mean <laughs> Uh, I am just astounded by this movie. This movie will turn any straight man completely gay. I think it makes Brokeback Mountain look like my dinner with Andre. You know, it's just <laughs> fucking incredible to look at. And, and you know, I loved everything that everybody has mentioned about it. Uh, I thought that Bell Star was great. That that Not to give too many, any spoiler alert, you know, but once, uh, once Zachariah achieves his goal of becoming the best gunslinger let's just say that the movie loses a lot of steam and i think the the last 20 percent of this movie is like pretty bad and it does leave you with a bad taste but i'm telling you the first two-thirds of this movie i was so on board and really enjoying the hell out of it it was super funny 
And and I was I was wondering for about 45 minutes is this the best movie I've ever seen? I was I was asking <laughs> myself that several times. Ultimately, it's not the greatest movie I've ever seen, but I'm again like I've never heard of this movie. The the I I watched it as the director's intended on my phone, you know, uh <laughs> streaming to uh uh, my, my my television on the archive link that you sent, Bob. So if anybody out there wants to watch this movie, the archive.org cut is the one to stream, and it's completely free. Um, hopefully we'll include that link uh, with the podcast. I, I will, I will. It's so much better than YouTube. The YouTube one, I, I think some of my opinion of the movie is I watched like the first third on YouTube before I was like, this is just impossible. This looks so terrible let me try to let me try to airplay it to roku here and from archive and it was i, I shouldn't just watch the whole thing again and i didn't do that the one time this is the one little personal aside i'll put in is that when i did meet country joe uh when i was still in high school and he played a, a, a concert in ukiah at the ukiah high school cafetorium O- opening for him a very early iteration of Willie and the Nighthawks, which was the first time I saw them. That's his dad's favorite band, by the way. His his yes. father Raj, his favorite. Band. Yes, he's yes his favorite band. I mean, I to me, you talk about Willie and the Nighthawks, you might as well be talking about the Rolling Stones. You know, I just assume that everybody knows who they are. But uh, but yeah, um, so so I really would have liked to have asked him a couple questions about this crazy fucking film but i just heard about it thanks to pam you know so i am i'm grateful for for this i thought that's the whole story of the show is i thought i knew a lot of stoner movies i thought i knew a ton about movies you know even if Corey was coming at it from a more humble place than i am like i want to learn more i'm like i know a lot but i this every every time every episode it's like expanding and blowing my mind it's just uh, I've, I've been watching movies my whole life, and I feel like I'm just t- touched the tip of the iceberg. So thank you, Pam. Uh, it, uh, it does feel like the last 20 minutes were maybe some studio intervention or something. You're right. Although I do, I do like the very last bit when they ride off together. I do, too. Especially, um, we're getting into spoilery territory, but movies that dealt with gay issues at the time, well, they always Siddhartha, end up. If you know the end of Siddhartha, yeah, then you know they, the end They of end up dead. You know, yeah, uh, you gay people always end up dead. It's always a tragedy. Any any movie tackling gay issues from nineteen well, they just transcended their they transcended their physical shell is what they did. Yeah, <laughs> I, I love how after Bell Star he gets bored with with uh, heterosexuality or bisexuality, and then he shacks up with that old guy who makes some organic breakfast, <laughs> yeah. and they they watch the sunrise. The old coot. I wish that coot was played by Jackie Lamb so much that if it was Jackie oh, Lamb yeah. or Struther Martin. Right. I wish I wish they spent a little bit more money on that. Str- imagine Struther Martin. I made yeah. you I made you this organic fruit <laughs> breakfast, you know. What we got here is organic vegetables. Was, was Gabby Hayes still alive at this point? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean Gabby Hayes, um well, who is it? Walter Brennan is always oh, playing like the yeah. the old coot that's that's definitely yeah. way too into Jimmy Stewart or whatever. Yeah, yeah I mean, <laughs> like there he's doing Jimmy Stewart's laundry and some of those Anthony Mann movies and stuff. 
So, so the, the stuff was going on, but yeah, Siddhartha or that Siddhartha, Zachariah outs it, and it's yeah, you're right, uh, Corey and Greg, Pam. It swings for the fences. It's it it does get that. Who can tell me more about John Rubenstein? I've John never... Rubenstein is really interesting in that you know it's like Don Johnson is the famous one because he went on to do Miami Vice and da da da. John Rubenstein has like worked far more. Yeah, big, right. Big, big theater actor, big TV actor. He's also composer, and he is the son of Arthur Rubinstein, the classical pianist. Oh, interesting. Yeah, he was someone. The movies didn't love him clearly, but um, right. Now, was he? He was in the Mod Squad, correct? No, no. I no. dropped him, Corey. I dropped his IMDb in the chat, and when you see him now. You're like that guy. You've seen that guy in, uh, you know, Law yeah. Order episodes. Whatever. Oh yeah. Oh my God, that's him. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah, he became <laughs> while well, Don while well, Don Johnson has remained vain. Yeah. Right. And still looks like Don Johnson. John Rubenstein right. gave up on that. I think when he was in his thirties. And he's just one of became, our best. Uh, he's one of our best character actors. Yeah. 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 I, I, I did not. You know, I mean, he's an okay gunfighter and stuff, but I just like the, I just did not have a crush on John Rubenstein enough. Well, they to, hired him for his smile because you, you when he smiles, yeah. it's like, oh my God, it, it wipes out everything else on the screen. Yeah. The action right. isn't the act, the gun, the gunfighting, the action isn't directed Sergio Leone good. You know, that, that it's lacking oh. there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but consider, consider this. I, I did spend some time thinking like, this movie is of 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 all the westerns with Don Johnson in it. I think this one is better than Django Unchained. Yes. I think this movie is better. Absolutely, I do too. <laughs> Which also has a long ass bad ending. Craig, Corey, just a little bit before we get into the other things and close out Zachariah. How about those Fender stacks, man? I just wanted those mm. damn Fender amps. So Pam, if you're a musician, oh my too. god, yeah. Dude, I wanted that Lucite guitar in the opening scene with the, that that uh, Joe Walsh is playing. The yeah. sun coming through the Lucite oh, guitar. God. I'm uh, sorry. I'm sorry. That this op- is a the opening right. scene with it's the James Gang <laughs> is worth the price of admission. Yeah. I mean, Elvin Jones's performance, Don Johnson's outfits, it's all worth the price of admission. But that opening scene with the James Gang knocked me the fuck out. I want to see it in a theater full of stoners for that and just and really big on a screen hear that that joe walsh riff that was incredible and in 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 later decades it too would it would also connect the beatles for zachariah since joe walsh Mm. and ringo were brother-in-law and ringo that's right oh wow wow that's (laughs) That's that's the opening scene gave me weird flashbacks to seeing black flag in Palo Alto in the mid eighties because Greg Ginn had a Lucite guitar. Oh yeah. He always played that. Yeah. He played that Lucite guitar. And that's like a teen, you know, 14 year old me is like so impressed with that fucking Lucite guitar of Greg Ginn's. And yeah, Joe Walsh and Greg Ginn couldn't be more different on the spectrum of guitar players. They're almost diametrically opposed, but Eh, there's a connection there. You know, I could start, I started to smell the cloves, you know, (laughs) punk shows. Somebody's always smoking cloves back then. It kind of took me into a weird place. It took me into the mid eighties instead of the early seventies, but I was like, oh man, I'm having, you know, I was high on luchador gummies at the time too, which is amazing that I could figure out airplay when I was that high, but yeah, 
I mean, the gear, Bob, you're right. This is this is as much gear porn as it is homoerotic porn. <laughs> it is well, the, out, the, just, the clothes, the outfits, the gear, like it's all it's all there. The James gang having those like two short but coiled guitar cables. Oh, you love those yeah. things. They're like, <laughs> I, I fucking those. love those things. And I fucking love Country Joe's guitar player who's literally rolling around. He's rolling around on the ground with a with a with a sixties SG yeah. with a Bigsby on it, and I'm just worried about the head, headstock and neck breaking because he's rolling around <laughs> on the ground. It's like that that was one of the most suspenseful times of the movies for me this year. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if listener Ajax is out there. Ajax, I don't know if you still listen to the show, but if you are, Zachariah is for you. You gotta check oh, out yeah. Zachariah. It's the TikTok report with Fol- Greg. Lena Franklin. Well, in Felina's stead, I'm doing the TikTok report today. Number one, there was a great like mini review from Matt McCarthy's awesome TikTok channel, um, where he kind of delves into uh, uh, his his I guess parents' DVD collection, and they actually had Zachariah, um, which is crazy. But my favorite one was. Somebody took this sound that must be going around TikTok where it says motherfuckers be like something Hulk. I can't understand it. But in this one, it's like motherfuckers say gay cowboys and you bring out these guys. Come on, man. Switch it up. Bring out these, <laughs> which is a, a tribute, a great tribute to Zachariah there. If you guys can see that. <laughs> it's like, why would you watch Brokeback Mountain when you have Zachariah? <laughs> Seriously, that's basically the point. But yeah. it's put to some kind of weird sound that I don't recognize that Felina could tell you all about. Uh, but I'm I'm a little bit at a loss to explain the origins of this crazy sound effect that she uses. I think it has something to do with the Hulk, but I can't be sure. It's very garbled to me. Sorry, Bob. This was the TikTok report with Greg Franklin. Uh, first and maybe only TikTok report. Pam, do you have weed recommendations okay. or are you just talking movies today? No, but Corey said I could recommend pie. Yeah. <laughs> For Zachariah, I would recommend, um, now they call it uh, milk bar pie, but it's really crack pie, which is a very like buttery and addictive mess crack pie. And then for... Uh, pursued because it's the 19th century shoe fly pie which is basically molasses and brown sugar and seems appropriate for you know Teresa Wright not only is Pam the greatest movie critic in the Bay Area but also the greatest pie critic okay (laughs) so this is what we call a head movie this was a movie made for hippies to go see in the theater at midnight tripping their balls off so you want to get as stoned as possible I say you go into your dispensary and ask your bud tender for a gelato. Now, every uh, dispensary will have a gelato. Uh, Gelato, also known as Larry Bird and Gelato 42, is an evenly balanced hybrid marijuana strain made from crossing Sunset Sherbert and Thin Mint Girl Scout cookies. It's a balance of indica and sativa, which produces a euphoric high accompanied by strong feelings of relaxation. You want to get stoned out of your gourd for Zachariah, I say go get a gelato. It's a very balanced hybrid. As maybe a counterpoint to to Corey's recommendation, I smoked weed that I had gotten for free from some dude in Ukiah. And it was a giant jar 
And it was the kind of weed where I smoked about three or four bowls of it and got just a little bit high. And that was okay because Zachariah brought me the the rest of the way. Zachariah, the film itself, took me there and I was completely satisfied, satiated, and, and my mind blown. So I don't think you can do wrong uh, uh, with, with anything. Yeah, it's it's a very stony movie. Loses steam in the in the in the mm-hmm. end there in the third act, but totally worth the ride. Thank you again, Pam, for bringing this to us. Pam and her initial texts about the movies and movies that she'd like to do. She said this is a uh, homoerotic western with the James Gang and Country Joe and the Fish. So I'm like, when a movie calls for dropping acid, but I'm not going to drop acid. I'm not. I don't even know where to find acid, and I'm still going to stay on the cannabis tip. I go for the luchador gummies. So. I've talked about them before. You can't go wrong with them. It feels like you're on mushrooms. They are the heavyweight champion of cannabis. According to their website, they put on the company puts on Lucha Lucha shows in Fresno. They're a Latina run and created brand. And in the past, I've gone for the strawberry pitaya and the pineapple mango flavor. This time Mm. I went for cucumber chili lime. Mm. Wow. Chili lime. Which tastes like it's like a margarita that will get you high as fuck an hour, an hour and a half later. So it's like (laughs) as a tribute to Jimmy Buffett, who just died. We found out Jimmy Buffett died this morning. We're all wasting away in Margaritaville with the luchador cucumber chili lime margarita. Uh, You know, they are like a margarita or a Paloma, uh, but it gets you really, really high. Uh, 10 milligrams of THC in each one. I only did one luchador i kind of wish i did two or one and a half for zachariah and just went totally stoned but if i was any more stoned i wouldn't have figured out how to airplay from my phone (laughs) to my roku uh stream bar so i mean it's amazing i figured it out 30 minutes in nice to zachariah at all on a luchador gummy but get luchador.com great stuff if you can find it in your dispensary get it you'll love it it's great Excellent choice. A hazy print of Zachariah is now streaming on YouTube, but a much better DVD rip of it is available through archive.org. I highly recommend you airplay the archive version to your flat screen TV or just watch it on your laptop or tablet. I was here before, long ago. I was a baby then. I was scared the way only a kid can get. I was in a dark, cold place. I had my eyes closed to get away from some bad dream. The same dream I've been having all my life. I've never understood. There were boots running, flashes. Daddy! Daddy! But my father wasn't there. Instead, a strange woman was lying on the floor. She crawled toward me. That was the first time I saw your mother. Shortly after midnight on September 1st, 1948, screen star Robert Mitchum was busted for puffing on a marijuana cigarette during a raid on actress Lita Leeds' Laurel Canyon home. Mitchum thought it was end his career, but it only put him at the top of the pantheon of Hollywood potheads. Maybe coincidentally, he was in this trippy psychological western a year earlier. 
Mitchum plays Jeb Brand, a brooding cowpoke who struggles to remember the massacre of his family through fragments of childhood memories and expressionist dream sequences. Directing this Greek tragedy bundled in Freudian neuroses was Raoul Walsh, an eye-patch-wearing tough guy who once rode with Pancho Villa. Also starring Teresa Wright from Hitchcock's Shadow of a Doubt as Jeb's love interest and sister by adoption. Judith Anderson is Jeb's adoptive mother who's definitely keeping secrets. Dean Jagger is Jeb's mysterious uncle who's plotting to kill him. And the skipper's dad, Alan Hale Sr., as the lovable gambling house owner. With breathtaking landscapes captured by the amazing cinematography of James Wong Howe and a sweeping score by Max Steiner mm. from Warner Brothers in 1947, this is Pursued. Now, uh, Pam, this was my idea to do it, but you thought it was a good idea. What are, what are your thoughts on Pursued? Well... I, I, this was the first time I'd ever seen it. I've, I'm a huge Mitchum fan. Um, I think he was po quite possibly the sexiest actor that ever lived. And he's in my, one of my favorite movies of all time out of the past. But, you know, I know him as that noir guy and this, uh, but he, I knew he did a lot of Westerns, but I've never really pers pursued them. <laughs> um, so this was, I, it struck me as it's yeah, it's a western, but it's a noir. You know, it is more noir than western in in certain aspects, and also a little twisted because yeah, they're adopted, but they're still brother and sister. It's like come on. Oh, uh, my wife Rosie pointed out that it's a, a almost a western version of Wuthering Heights, where Mitchum is Heathcliff. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, there's definitely some Bronte sisters, some Jane Eyre going on in this movie as well. A little bit of that. I thought it could have used a better leading lady. Um, Teresa Wright just kind of, I mean, she's no Jane Greer. I mean, <laughs> no, I, I was wondering like if Elizabeth Taylor was a little bit older, you know, it's, it's she's way too young here that she might've brought uh better to that role. Now I like Teresa Wright in shadow of a doubt. And also um, what's the, what's the soldiers returning from war movie. She's really good in that too. Oh, she the, won an the Oscar best years of our lives. Yeah. And she's also, yeah. she won an Oscar for Mrs. Miniver. She yeah. Was like, she was, she, her, her name is above the title uh, above his in this because she was the one that was the huge star. And she was also married to the screenwriter. So yes. that, that was a thing not to, not to belittle her accomplishments, but I mean, as a teenager watching shadow of a doubt, I kind of had a crush on her. I really liked her character in that. But in this, she's kind of reduced to, oh, Jeb, you know, <laughs> she's only good when she turns bad for a while. I, I have to be in the min minority here because I was very impressed with Teresa Wright in this movie, mainly because it's such a d different character than Shadow of a Doubt. Like, it's completely different. And yeah, her 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 heel turn is fantastic. But I just thought she was a good character in that. She's kind of motivated by what you might be expected, you know, at the time, like she wants to be courted. She wants to have a traditional, you know, uh, marriage and romance. And Mitchum is like, look, lady, I love you, but people have been trying to kill me since I was six. You know, can we just <laughs> can I, we just get married here? And so I thought that was a really interesting dynamic. And I was really impressed with her acting, even though I think it's supposed to run counter to what the lead actor wants but still is very understandable you can you can feel for for what she wants in life you know what about judith anderson as the mom 
I liked her a lot. She was intense, huh? What else has she been in? She was like a huge, I think, stage actress. She was, uh, um, I think she's actually Dane Judith Anderson. Nice. I was, I was quite impressed with, with, um, with her, uh, again, kind of a heel turn, uh, throughout the, mm-hmm. throughout the film. Now, now th- th- this movie is, is l- very large in scope. Like, um, it's over, it takes place over a, a number of years and a lot yes. of stuff happens. People go to war, there's funerals, there's marriages, there's, town dances there's um, <laughs> so there's a lot to soak into this movie and it's not just atmosphere right like you kind of have to pay attention to the story which was a little hard for me but it's convoluted as hell right like like yeah, i was confusing. trying to unpack the actual who is who uh, you know without getting into spoilers but there's a very like convoluted relationship that is happening at the core of this movie that I never really fully understood. Right, and also it kind of at the core of this movie is throughout the the, the all the things that happen through a number of years is there's this like family uh, yeah. uh, uh, feud. rivalry feud yeah. yeah rivalry like a Hatfield and McCoys kind of thing which was kind of hard to keep up with unpack. who's who yeah, well, yeah. Unpack. and like is there a war as hell thing going on That being said, as long as Robert Mitchum at this this is peak Mitchum. As long as he's on the screen talking, I'm happy. Yeah. Well, it's just it, it it's it's odd in that there's this family feud going on, but nobody bothers to tell the younger generation what is it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like so, oh, so they're just in the dark. So they're the just whole kind time. of like yeah. in the dark, having these these fraught moments, and they don't even know what the hell they're fighting about. <laughs> I'll give the listeners a quick rundown. So Robert Mitchum is this kid. He t- he tells this story in flashback. He's this little boy who's parents get fucking slaughtered right in front of his face he doesn't know why his memory's all jacked up from it so uh he gets taken in by a family and um he grows up with his family with with them by a single mom and her two kids and they run a ranch together he ends up falling in love with the daughter he ends up having kind of a rivalry with the brother and you know they're they're resentful to him because he's not blood and it's all the melodrama and 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 stuff that happens within the people like i said people go to war people die there's gun there's good there's actually good gunfights in this movie mm-hmm. all the stuff you want in a western all the stuff you want in a noir but I'll tell you, this for me, besides Mitchum, and he sings songs in this movie, any movie where Robert Mitchum sings songs is a good movie. For me, I really loved the New Mexico setting and the shadows and the photography mm-hmm. by James Wong Howe, who I just learned about from watching a Criterion documentary on him. So this is what I want to say to all the, and now I could appreciate, now I know what he does and what he brings to these movies. I never, I've seen so many James Wong Howe filmed movies. I had no idea what this guy was bringing to the table. So this is what I want to say to all you movie dummies out there like me. Watch these documentaries and watch these these essays that they put out on criterion because they really help you with the context of these things uh raw walsh there's a documentary um you know the amazing adventures of raw walsh or something like that that's on tcm periodically and that's where i first learned about pursuit i i hadn't seen it till we programmed it here but um raw walsh said of james wong Howe that his movies looked like movies from 10 years later Mm. There's some lighting things, uh, lighting uh, things in this movie that are stunning. There's mm-hmm. um, one scene where Teresa Wright is 
she lights a lantern and she's walking through a dark house and I've it's one of the greatest things I've ever seen on a movie before. It was so beautiful. Did I know what was happening in the story? No, but it was very beautiful. I want to talk a little bit about Raul Walsh. He's a giant of cinema that we probably don't talk about so much anymore. He mm-hmm. got into films. He 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 wasn't really named Raul. He took that name because he thought it made him sound more dashing and adventurous. He is a New York Irish <laughs> guy, went to Montana and learned how to ride horse and do rodeo tricks and do all the rodeo act stuff. So that when he goes out to Hollywood, he gets into movies and he falls in with D.W. Griffith and apprentices under him. He plays John Wilkes Booth in Birth of a Nation. That is Raul Walsh, uh, pre-Eyepatch Raul Walsh. And uh, Griffith had a deal with Pancho Villa. So Raul Walsh goes to film that. There was two directors. Walsh directed some of it. But it is like a docudrama with young Raul Walsh playing young Pancho Villa you know, with the fake beard and mustache and stuff. And also Pancho Villa himself playing himself as an older man. And, but they filmed like live execution, like Pancho Villa's men would execute the federales. And so that's part of that movie. That's now, I think most parts of it are lost forever, but, uh, Raul Walsh goes on. He made Bogart a star in high Sierra. He becomes a, one of the stock directors at Warner brothers. And uh, he also directed Cagney and White Heat, which what this movie does with Freudian themes and Westerns, uh, mm. White Heat does to the gangster movie. But I also want to say before I turn it over to, to somebody else is that Warner Brothers Studios in the 40s, in the 30s through the 50s, had a very dominant house style. Everything is on the beat. Everything is synced up to that Max Steiner score. The dun, 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 you know, those those climbs that Steiner does. And you're probably more familiar with it. I know Greg and Corey are probably more familiar with Warner Brothers cartoons of that time, which are Mm -hmm. also directed in the same style. Warner Brothers cartoons, Bugs Bunny, Looney Tunes, Merry Melodies are like a meta spoof of Warner Brothers feature films. What Carl Stalling, all of his music for Warner Brothers cartoons are kind of parodies of what Max Steiner is doing in the feature films. And, And again, like those cartoons, they're all on the beat. They're all on the one. The action on screen is syncopated with the music. And that's what you get. The other directors who directed in the style, Michael Curtiz, who we talked about in our last episode with King Creole. You know, and I, I almost think Curtiz would have been a better director for this because th- there isn't a lot of difference in that Warner Brothers style. You're, these directors are adapting to that style. But Curtiz has those European Gothic sensibilities. Raul Walsh described himself as the least neurotic man in Hollywood. Uh, John Huston, maybe also who at that time, John Huston is this great auteur and everything, but his Warner Brothers movies, Maltese Falcon and Treasure of the Sierra Madre, they're directed in that Warner Brothers style. I, I don't have so much. I don't think I think Raul Walsh did a good job directing this. I mean, it, I, I don't I guess you're saying there's not so much of a distinct his own humanity into it, like his own distinct style. Um, but I think it, it's directed mighty well, like, very well. I don't think that's the issue with this movie. It's just the, the story is very convoluted and, and, and complicated. I mean, we're playing at the margins here. I don't want to say that Raul Walsh didn't have his own style. He definitely did. And you can tell differences between a Curtiz Warner Brothers movie and a Raul Walsh Warner Brothers movie and a John Huston Warner Brothers movie. I don't think it would have been that much different. I just think Curtiz, like I said, he's. He has a slightly more gothic sensibility. He directed horror movies in the 30s. 
that mm-hmm. he might have been a little better suited. But Walsh is Walsh is a great, great director, and he is he is cinema. I mean, he's there at the beginning of cinema and and directing films through the fifties, and he's solid. Uh, Pam, do you have any thoughts on Raul Walsh? Not really. He was not one of my. I mean, I was definitely John Huston Curtis, uh, um mm-hmm. Howard Hawks more than Raul Walsh. I have a question. Do we know how he lost his eyeball? He was driving at night, uh-huh. probably drunk. When you read Raul Walsh biographies, there's a lot of him testifying on behalf of friends in drunk driving trials. Ah. Uh, but he was probably a little sauced, I imagine, or maybe a lot sauced. And he hit a rabbit. And according to him, <laughs> the rabbit tragedy. flings up somehow from being hit by his car, breaks through the windshield and shatters the glass and lands in his back seat, the dead rabbit. But the glass, one of the pieces of glass shards hit his right eye. Oh, my God. And, I, and somebody said, oh, you got to get a glass eye. And he said, no, because if I have a glass eye, I'll always have to take it out before I get in a fight. <laughs> <laughs> he was practical. <laughs> yeah, practical. I saw someone on, on Twitter ask a, a younger person, ask like, why do all, all these old directors have eye patches? John Ford, you know. This guy Walsh, and someone someone said it's because it's because they live life because they went to war because you know Wes Anderson and Noah Baumbach will never have an eye patch because they're just rich <laughs> NYU kids you know it's like well this guy this guy was just drunk driving and got a rabbit in the eye it's not that <laughs> it's always like you know when I was doing jujitsu all the time and MMA stuff in the nineties but I twist my ankle stepping off a curb and everybody would say oh did you do that in the dojo and it was never in the dojo it was always something stupid. You know, you're better off just telling him, yeah, I'm a tough guy. I did it this way. But Raul Walsh, I mean, he's there in Mexico while Pancho Villa is executing federales and, you know, filming yeah, like. He worked on motherfucking Birth of a Nation, for God's sake. Yeah. Yeah. He, you know, the most racist film ever, but. The most racist great. film of all time. Also one of the greatest films of all time. He's, he's great in it. He's great mm. in it. He jumping off the, he, he did injure his leg on that, jumping off the balcony. One other thing, him and Errol Flynn were great friends because Errol Flynn. Started hate, He hated working for Michael Curtiz, who Michael Curtiz, Adventures of Robin Hood, Captain Blood, he made Errol Flynn a star. But when Raul Walsh came to Warner Brothers, they became drinking buddies, him and Errol Flynn. He directed mm. a lot of Flynn movies. And John Barrymore was their third pal that, you know, they were just getting drunk, probably committing statutory rape and other heinous atrocities. But um, when John Barrymore died, Raul Walsh convinced or bribed the funeral director to let him have the corpse of John Barrymore. And he put it, put John Barrymore in Errol Flynn's living room, sitting there and Errol Flynn came into his house, sees John Barrymore who just died, just sitting there like with a cocktail in his hand, I think. And Errol (laughs) Flynn freaked the fuck out. It was like, get him out of (laughs) here. Oh, my imagine? God. Can you imagine wow. if, like, Brad Pitt, Steven Soderbergh dies, right? Brad Pitt <laughs> takes his, puts it in George Clooney's living room. Like, can you imagine that in modern day? It'd be crazy, right? <laughs> Those guys are such practical jokers. Oh, um, <laughs> Harry Dean Stanton. Like, if they took yeah. Harry Dean, you know. <laughs> Put it in David Lynch's <laughs> living room. <laughs> well, good movie. Melodrama, yeah. noir, western, everything you want. Mm-hmm. James Wong Howe. But really, just if you're a Robert Mitchum head like all of us, we are here. You got to check this off your Robert Mitchum's list, okay? It's no Night of the Hunter, but it's good. What's the one? What's the? What's your favorite one? You said Pam. 
out of the past. Out of the past. I need to see that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's uh, so good. If you haven't checked it out, Pam, it's another kind of noir Western with Mitchum from this time period. Blood on the Moon, Robert Wise. Uh, Maybe not as trippy as Pursued, but probably a little bit of a better movie. Very, very good. So definitely, we'll we'll probably program that on the show. And, And Pam... I have to thank you for bringing Westerns into old movies for young stoners. Cause when I started the podcast with Corey, Corey said, young people are bummed out by Westerns and war is hell movies. And so we haven't really done (laughs) Westerns for a while, but we've done a lot of noir this season. And I'm like, I kind of, we need to switch it up. We need some Westerns. This is a noir Western, but we still, I thank Mm -hmm. you for for with Zachariah, you brought Westerns into old movies for young stone. You and brought you really, a really gay one too. So thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Any other thoughts on uh pursued before we go to weed? One of the things I really appreciated about pursued is that the paranoia of the lead character is utterly justified in a way that usually, you know, in old movies, paranoia is, Part of some kind of problem that the character has that they must get over. It's not real. But in this case, you've got an entire generation at a town that is trying to kill the main character, shooting at him for his entire life and missing. And, uh, you know, and it's a regular almost occurrence for him for someone to come up to him and try to try to blow his brains out. And it's done with such great, you know, style that the paranoia really flows into being paranoid on weed you know so what i would i would i would recommend um not that i smoked it but like a real strong sativa head one that makes you feel like you got rocks on your head and your 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 fingernails are digging into your knees you know like and you're got the cut kind of the sweats and you're wondering if you're gonna die that's what i would recommend for watching pursued great point greg like this is one movie, like, usually if the main character is paranoid, there's some gray mm-hmm. area there. You don't know if the uh, people around him he's paranoid about are, are what he thinks they are. There is no gray area here. Everyone around Robert <laughs> Mitchum's a fucking asshole. Except Everyone. him. He's, he's the only sane one in this movie. So. <laughs> now, don't be, don't be mean to Alan Hale Sr. Oh, yeah. No. The Skipper's dad. The Skipper's, the skipper's dad. dad. Yeah. Yeah. Skipper's dad is all over these Warner Brothers movies, always playing that likable guy. And he represents like a chance for Mitchum to get out of all this bullshit. Is he mm-hmm. staying in the town, but it's like, you're a war hero now. You're valuable to the skipper's dad, uh, Alan Hale Sr. He owns the gambling <laughs> yeah. house. It's obviously a crooked gambling house, but he's still like maybe the best character, the most pure character in the movie. Because, yeah, he helps Mitchum win a bunch of money that he then gets back convincing Mitchum to buy into the gambling house and just become like the mascot. <laughs> partner. Of the it's like Scorsese Casino. Yeah, right. It's great because I thought for sure he was going to, I thought for sure the skipper's dad was going to sell out Mitchum at some point. And he, he, he's, he's there for him. It's good. He's the, you're right. So, he's the yeah. good one. He's the good one. Last episode, I sung the praises of a corporate weed product and I, no shame. I am a sellout. I, Greg, you weren't here, but um, I was talking about Paps Blue Ribbon drinks and I love them. They get me super high. Now, the Paps company has rebooted. Wait, what? They Paps Blue Ribbon has weed drinks, weeds like weed seltzers, and they're so good. They're amazing. Cannabis seltzers, yes. Cannabis seltzers. So you know how Paps they like Blue Ribbon, the PBR yeah. baby, PBR from, baby from Midnight Madness fame. 
Yeah. They're four, a four pack yeah. for, for 26 bucks or something or 16 bucks. Oh my God. 16 bucks. Four pack for 16 bucks. So $4 again. You know how clearly Canadian just got rebooted and some like years ago Zima got rebooted? Pabst Blue Ribbon rebooted this old alcoholic root beer called Not Your Father's Root Beer, but now it's weed root beer, oh. and it's very good, and it's 10 milligrams a bottle, and I drank two bottles of it, one before Pursued and one in the middle of Pursued, and wow. it, made, it made James Wong Howe's shadowy cinematography and beautiful uh, uh, New, New Mexico uh, surroundings, very heady and cool. This, I'm going to say... Bob, you keep saying this is a trippy movie. This was not a trippy movie at all for me. This was not a stony movie. However, it's a good movie, and uh, drink them root beers. Okay, I went. I'm still, like Corey, I'm still working through stuff from last episode. I have the Bruce Leroy, so I smoked the Bruce Leroy. It is um, an indica-dominant hybrid. It's a craft indoor flower from Ball Family Farms in Oakland, and they make kind of small batch weed. It's got great green buds. It drew me into the cinematography as well. I do think Greg's right. And even watching it, I'm like, you either go against the paranoia with, uh, <laughs> with an Indica or you just go into it. And I kind of wish I went into it with a, with a sativa dominant hybrid, but you know, Bruce Leroy named after the main character in Barry Gordy's the last dragon, you will achieve the glow from Bruce Leroy with 22.74% total THC. Pursued is currently streaming on Tubi, and you can also find it on YouTube, and there's a print on archive.org, which won't have the annoying ads, but I found the ads on Tubi this time to be a little minimal. It, it's, maybe it helps to watch these things at 2 in the morning. Maybe the ads are less at 2 in the morning, but uh, definitely good, great, great looking print of it on Tubi. No, no ads on the YouTube version, um, which I watched, oh, uh, which, was, which, was really, which was really good, and a, and a nice transfer. Pam. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Corey, thanks so much for inviting Pam, and thanks so much for bringing Westerns into the show. Pam, I can't, I can't thank you enough for joining us. It's so good to hang out with you. I miss you. I love you. You look so gorgeous, and I can't wait to hang out with you again sometime. Yeah, I miss you too, Corey. And thank you guys for having me on. This was fun. Come back sometime, please. <laughs> How can people get a hold of you, and do you have any events coming up, anything coming up for Pam? Um, I am going to be at the four star on, I want to say September 26th, but that might be wrong. It, I am going to be, um, introducing Scorsese's uh, last, uh, Dylan documentary where he took Dylan's footage from Ronaldo and Clara and spun a whole fiction out. I mean, it's a documentary, but there's a lot of fiction in it. You can see Pam introduce Scorsese's Rolling Thunder Review on Sunday, September 24th at the Four Star Theater at 2200 Clement Street in San Francisco. There will also be some live music before the screening. Please visit cinemasf.com for tickets and info. Can't wait. I'm going to be in town for that, so I'm definitely going to check it out. How can people get a hold of you, Pam? How can they find you? Um, I kind of sort of have a website. <laughs> website called citizenkane.com. I haven't posted in like three months because I'm lazy. Well, I'm not lazy. I just, I need like the paycheck too, you know? Yeah. But there's a plethora of amazing writing on there yeah. that uh, people could check out. I really highly recommend going into Pam's archives because she has a, a voice when uh, writing about cinema that is, is pretty rare. Pam, thank you again. And thanks for bringing Westerns. So, hey, come back in about three weeks when Felina Franklin is back 
for a pair of public domain zombie movies that won't get her in trouble with SAG. We'll have Messiah of Evil from 1972, and then Bela Lugosi stars in White Zombie from 40 years earlier. That'll all be right here. You can stick that in your pen and vape it on Old Movies for Young Stoners. Yeehaw!